how much money can you save by going electric? Say you swapped out your gasoline car for an electric vehicle, switched to an induction stove, added solar panels to produce electricity on site, and added a heat pump to warm your water and manage temperatures within your home. As we discuss on this episode, the savings could be significant, especially in the wake of President Biden signing the Inflation Reduction Act into law. Hello, I'm Julia Piper, host of the Political Climate Podcast. And I'm Maria Virginia Olano, the show's producer and editorial and research associate at Canary Media. Hello to everyone listening. Welcome back to another episode of Newsflash, a special monthly series here on political climate where we're shedding light on stories you may have missed or that needed a double click, giving you critical information coupled with details you won't get anywhere else. This week, we're drawing on the latest reporting from Canary Media to bring you the story behind the story, sharing information that got lost on the cutting room floor while writing the article. And I know Canary's done an excellent job of covering all the ins and outs of the Inflation Reduction Act. Maria Virginia, didn't you joke that it's uh, the Keeping Reporters Employed Act or something like that? Pretty much. There is so much in this law, and there's going to be so much to parse out as agencies figure out the rules and the ins and outs of this, that there's going to be a lot of work uh, reporting that out, which is very exciting. Absolutely. Before we go any further, our show is produced with support from the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. It can also be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and beyond. So search for Political Climate and make sure to hit subscribe. Now, as we just mentioned, there's a lot to unpack in the Inflation Reduction Act. And arguably one of the places that American consumers can feel the most direct impact is through the measures to help make homes more efficient and at the same time, lower carbon. That's right. Our homes where we live and where many of us also work uh, rely on fossil fuels to heat our space and our water or to cook our food if you have a gas stove. But there is a push to get our homes off of fossil fuels by switching to electric appliances and electric systems. And this new law includes funding to accelerate that transition. So on today's show, we thought we would dive right into that question. Now that the Inflation Reduction Act is law, what's in it for you? And specifically, how might it transform your home? To help us answer that question, we called Ari Matusiak. He's the CEO of Rewiring America, a nonprofit dedicated to electrifying where we live, work, learn, and play. And just last week, they launched a savings calculator, which you can use to see what tax credits and rebates you qualify for under the new law based on your personal household information. We will be sure to link that in the show notes so you can check it out. But before you do that, here's our conversation with Ari. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Hi, Ari. Welcome to Political Climate. And thank you so much for making time for us in what I am sure has been a really busy couple of weeks for you. Well, it's wonderful being on your show. And thank you so much for having me. So tell us about home electrification. What does an average household look like today from an energy perspective? And how might it be different in the future? Why is it important that we electrify homes? The way I think about this is that There are 121 million households in America. They are all different shapes and sizes. They have all different kinds of configurations. But as a baseline, most homes in America, the vast majority of them, 
are operating from a fossil fuel format, which basically means that the machines that run those homes, the appliances that we use, the cars that we pull up to the home in um, after we get home from work or take the kids to school or whatever the case might be, the mode case is that those homes are run on fossil fuels. And there are a variety of implications of that. One implication is that those fossil fuel-powered homes cause quite a lot of emissions. 42% of our energy-related emissions are coming from those fossil fuel-powered homes. But another is that effectively those households are paying a tax. They are paying a fossil fuel tax to live their lives um, because fossil fuel machines are more inefficient and cost more to operate than efficient electric machines. So where we need to go from a climate perspective is to electrify what amounts to the billion machines across the 121 million households that people rely on to get to and from work, to heat the air and water in their homes, cook their food, dry their clothes. And as we transition those machines from fossil fuel to efficient electric, we will be changing the format of the American household to an electric format. That electric format home will lock in savings year over year for people and will generate, frankly, the largest transfer of wealth back to American families away from energy producers than uh, has ever happened in the United States. And the Inflation Reduction Act is really a catalyst for making that happen. And we'll, I know, get into this in more detail, but the thing that I would say at the top is that the beauty of the Inflation Reduction Act is its durability. It's a 10-year policy where the, all of the measures inside of it stay the same over that lifetime so that households and families can basically interact with it when the time is right for them. So, you know, it's not like a, you have to rush out and take advantage of something because it's about to expire it's a meet you where you are kind of policy in your journey for the next decade. So let's drill down a little bit more on the Inflation Reduction Act. Let's start with the tax credits. I know there's a lot in there, but I think that's a pretty universally accessible piece of the bill. So Ari, could you walk us through these 25C credits and what they mean for electrification? Sure. The tax credits are of different types. So the way I think about a household are all the machines that I mentioned that people rely on. So vis-a-vis those tax credits, then there are three different ones. There are tax credits for EVs, which take the caps off of what had been um, sort of the traditional EV tax credit and introduce a tax credit for used EVs, which is incredibly important to facilitate that market. There are tax credits for solar and storage, which increase the robustness of those incentives. And again, sort of get us off the solar coaster where the investment tax credit's here, and then it's lower, and then it's expiring, and then hurry up because it's getting better, and then it's going out again. But also including, as I just mentioned, uh, storage and geothermal as another use case. And so if you kind of think about those tax credits as your renewable power and your storage systems, because EVs really are storage systems... Then you have the core appliances that are picked up in what's called 25C. And 25C has tax credits available for things like uh, weatherization, but really importantly, a tax credit for upgrading someone's breaker box and wiring 
because what will end up happening is as we put more load into our homes, we will have to, in some form or fashion, likely deal with the breaker boxes that we have in our homes, the circuit panels. So the tax credit recognizes the infrastructure that needs to be included, but then it also includes heat pumps up to $2,000. In fact, the most robust tax credit available through that policy is for heat pumps. And that can be up to 30% of the price for purchase and installation. But the critical thing about all of these tax credits, which might not initially be intuitive, is that they're available every year. So it's not like a one and done situation. If you access the tax credit, that's it. The household can no longer access the tax credit. They are available each year that you have a project that you are doing that is eligible and tax appetite to, that can be offset. So another big part of home electrification in the bill comes in the form of rebates. There are two core rebate programs, as I understand it. There's a High Efficiency Electric Home Rebate Act, or HERA, and the HOMES Act. Could you walk us through both of those elements of the bill? Sure. I think the most immediately accessible and easiest to navigate rebate that is available is the one has a wild name, Hira, but regardless, um, there's a point of sale rebate for people up to 150% of area median income. And what that rebate is for is for a series of machines, heat pumps, heat pump water heaters, electric stoves, heat pump clothes dryers, circuit panels, insulation and air sealing and ventilation and wiring. Each of those has a number, a, a rebate level associated to them, but with a cap to the household of $14,000. Now, if you are making up to 80% of the area median income where you live, that $14,000 can cover 100% of the project costs, including labor. If you are making between 80% and 150% of area median income, it can cover 50% of the project costs for what you are doing. So let's take an example. Let's say you're going to get a heat pump in the rebate context, and let's say you make 78% of area median income, just to pick a number. The heat pump is $8,000 as a rebate. Uh, so it's a very robust rebate. There's also $4,000 available to upgrade a circuit panel and $2,500 available for wiring. So for that job, assuming you had to do some wiring work and maybe upgrade the breaker box, you could access $14,000 for the heat pump installation itself. So maybe that covers the whole thing. Maybe it covers almost the whole thing, but it's a very robust rebate. And additionally, it can be combined with tax credits if you have tax appetite. And then there is another one, uh, which is called the homes rebate, but it's really kind of like um, a modeled savings energy audit style rebate where the maximum available to a household is somewhere between $2,000 and $8,000, depending on your income and depending on the amount of energy savings you are demonstrating through a project that you're gonna achieve. So unlike the tax credits, the rebates have a one-time allocation of funds capped at around $9 billion, although they could get renewed if there's sufficient consumer interest and Congress decides they've been successful. Another key difference about these programs is that they will be administered, though, through state energy offices, where they will have some discretion in how the programs get implemented. So on that front, we'll have to wait and see how some of the details shake out in terms of, you know, how people apply, which energy professionals lead the way, et cetera. 
So these offices are probably going to be working on them. In fact, I'm sure they are as we speak. So there's lots more to watch on that front as we see all of this roll out. Absolutely. So Ari, we've gone through the tax credits and the rebates portion of the law, and there's still a lot more that impacts home electrification. I'm specifically thinking about the expanded lending authority for the DOE's loans programs office and the new federal green bank. What are some ways in which they could further impact home electrification initiatives? These are incredibly important aspects of the policy, and we worked quite hard on them, actually. So you all are familiar with this, but the way that I would think about this most simply is if I'm doing a pro- uh, taking on a, an upgrade to a apl- set of appliances in my home, very likely in more than 50% of cases in the United States, I'm going to be financing that purchase because it's a significant purchase, right? It's a, it's a lot of money out of pocket. And so as a result, the cost of financing and the availability of financing becomes very important to achieving this transition that we're talking about. So the rebates and the tax credits and all those kinds of things go to the off the top price of the job. So instead of a $10,000 job, it's a $7,000 job or it's a $6,000 job or whatever the case might be. In the case where something is being financed, the rest of that is going to be paid through some kind of vehicle where there's a, a, a monthly payment likely. Well, in those instances, um, there's another price, and that is the cost of the financing itself. The lower the cost of the financing, the lower the monthly payment will be. And so that cost of financing goes into the way that you start to think about the overall project cost. And what's really important is that as we drive the deployment and facilitate this transition is that we keep the cost of financing as low as we can, because that is in a way its own kind of rebate. If the cost of financing is lower than what it normally would be, then you're putting money back into the pockets of the household who would have had to get financing to get the job done regardless. So the loan program office and the clean energy accelerator are both tools to do exactly that. They are slightly different in their uh, design, but they are both tools designed to pull down the cost of financing and specifically with the accelerator to really focus on low and moderate income families and communities and to have flexibility, frankly, to do even sort of non-lending grant making kind of funding as well. When you put all of these pieces together, how much do you think it would affect the per home cost for efficiency and electrification projects, Ari? You know, what kind of impact will this have on people's pocketbooks every day? The modeling that we've done suggests that the average household in America would save $1,800 a year if they had electrified everything in their homes. That's a significant amount of money when you think about the fact that 49% of Americans don't have $400 available to them for an emergency expenditure. So $1,800 is a material amount of money. And in some cases, it's actually much more. So you know, imagine, for instance, the 10 million households in the United States who are on delivered fuels, uh, fuel oil or propane. The cost of fuel oil in the United States is up 106% over the last year, which means that this winter homes in New England and in the upper Midwest in particular, but also in the Southwest might face heating bills that are double what they were last year. 
in some cases, the projections are that people are going to spend $5,000 to heat their homes this winter. Well, if you electrify those homes and get the oil boilers out, you're talking about all of those savings coming back to households, which is much more significant than $1,800. So the overall number is going to vary household by household and sort of upgrade by upgrade. But the way that I, th- I like to think about this is that we are putting households on a path to electrification. And as we do that, the savings stack. So if somebody does one measure in a given year, they might save $100 a year. And then they might save another $500 if they do something in the following year and another $800 if they do something in the following year. But the power of this is that those savings then lock in. Um, It's not a one-year savings because these machines last for 15, 20, 25 years. So you are locking in those savings year over year over year. And the other thing that you are doing is you are getting households off of the volatility and uncertainty that comes with fossil fuel energy prices. And that's critically important because we've seen, I mean, the name of this bill is the Inflation Reduction Act because of the spike in prices, almost half of which are coming from energy bills in American families. So when you think about what drives inflation, energy bills drive inflation and energy bills is code for fossil fuels because it's not efficient electric homes that are driving inflation. If you have solar panels on your house, you're locking in the cost of your energy for 20 years. So we are importantly, as we transition, not just delivering savings back to families that lock in and stack year over year, we are getting them off of the volatility where they actually don't know and can't predict how much they will be paying for their fixed energy costs because those fossil fuel markets are so volatile. The way I think about it is the Inflation Reduction Act is the ante that we needed to catalyze the market. And now we need to catalyze the market and make it easy for people to access these uh, improvements and to electrify their homes. What should happen over the course of the next decade is that tens and tens of millions of homes are electrified by the end. Because what needs to happen by the end of the decade is that every single time a machine is replaced in the United States, it is replaced with an efficient electric one. That's true for cars. It's true for water heaters. It's true for furnaces. It's true for cooktops. It's true for dryers. It's true for all the things. And so in order to get to that point, we needed the Inflation Reduction Act and the capital that it's putting into the market to help bring down the costs and spur the transformation that needs to happen. And so we have a collective opportunity now to help make it so that Americans have access to these machines and have access to effectively a lower cost future that puts money back in their pockets which is super exciting, but the proof is going to be in how we perform over the next decade. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than the state average. 
Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice have helped vulnerable communities gain access to electric vehicles, energy storage, and energy savings. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. One thing I think a lot about in my day job at Goodleap, which is a financier of many of these solutions, is the role of contractors. When the rubber really hits the road on these projects, contractors are the ones who are having these conversations with their clients, with the homeowners, laying out the various options and benefits of an electric system versus a gas one, for example. They're the ones walking through the cost savings and benefits. So how do you and the Rewiring America team think about contractor education and making sure that they're up to speed on how the latest electric products work and also how these new policies work, given they're designed to help catalyze this market, but at the same time are kind of complicated? Yes, this is a critical point, and I'm glad you raised it. So there are a million home improvement contractors in the United States. 85% of them do less than a million dollars a year of revenue. They are small businesses. A million dollars a year revenue is maybe somewhere between 50 to 100 jobs a year. I'm not talking about solar contractors now. So, but between 50 to 100 jobs a year. So if I say to a contractor, hey, there's this awesome new thing. It's called a heat pump and these incentives, and you should be selling that into the market because it's going to be a big deal. And they do 50 jobs a year and and they say, well, how many jobs is that going to be? And you say, well, it's going to take a little while to get going here, but it's going to be three jobs in the first year, and then it's going to get to six, and we think it's going to get to like 12 for you by year four. Well, if I'm a small business owner, and I have to think about the expense of retraining my team and sort of coming up to speed and maybe having a different relationship with manufacturers than I did before... I'm going to say, well, that sounds like a great policy. I'm really glad that happened. Let me know when the market's ready and I will train my team to take advantage of it. So what needs to happen is we need to go to the contractors and say there are 30 jobs a year for you on your 50 jobs for heat pumps. And uh, the market is here and you have a choice to make of whether you want to participate in that future or not, because that's where the future is going to be. So I start there because I think... The reality is we need to do a very good job of aggregating demand in markets locally to create the sort of awareness for contractors that there is a real market here that is worth investing the capital and training their teams around and making the transition uh, around. And so that is part of what we need to do in order to catalyze the market. Another aspect of this is to think more strategically about the moments in time where someone is electrifying and take each electrification moment and try to translate it into an opportunity for three more that come after. So as a, for instance, let's take the EV. Someone gets a Ford F-150 Lightning. What they basically got with that awesome truck is a truck with the battery that they bought. They purchased a giant battery that can back up their home for three days and all the rest. If they live in a home where they're able to park that pickup in the driveway or the garage, 
what they might want to do is get a level two charger and Ford will sell that to them. They might also need to upgrade their breaker box in order to accommodate the charging of that machine in their home. And what's great about that is once they do all those things, the car can back up the house. Well, at that moment in time, what should also happen, in my view, is that 240 volt outlets should be installed where the furnace and the water heater and the cooktop are. Because as soon as that wiring is done and those plugs are put in, that home has been reformatted into being an electric home. And now when that water heater goes out, it is not a absurd conversation with a contractor to say, oh, you should totally get a heat pump. That sounds great. Tell me how that works. Well, you know, it'll be a couple of weeks while we get the electrician lined up and then we'll get the heat pump installed. And in the meantime, you're going to have to, you know, boil the water in order to take a warm, you know, bath or shower. That's not very compelling. Um, Whereas if the outlet is already there because the, because that pre-work was done, you're just taking out one machine and you're putting in a heat pump and plugging it in and you are done. So it's not just about the contractor education, in my view. It is about sort of taking these moments in time and turning them into reformatting moments for homes so that they become electric ready. And there are a number of those that we can talk about. So let's talk about that demand side, because consumer education is also lacking at the moment. People either don't know how much better these electric options have become, or they are hesitant or uncertain about them. So how are you thinking about the need for consumer engagement and education? This is where the Inflation Reduction Act is super powerful, because there are tens of billions of dollars of benefits that are now available to American households. And those benefits, those rebates and tax credits enable a conversation to happen about something that I can get and an incentive that I can access for a machine that could help me save money. So immediately the availability of these rebates and tax credits create the opportunity for us to drive consumer awareness. And we need to really take advantage of that. We need to leverage the massive investment that is coming to facilitate this market transition to have a conversation with consumers about the market transition and the opportunity. And it comes back to the contractor education as well, right? To educate them about those opportunities. I will say this though, I don't think as a general matter that people think about their water heaters and furnaces. Just us on this uh, podcast. (laughs) Yeah, just on this podcast, right. You think about them when they don't work quite a lot. I would be willing to bet a dollar that if you ask most Americans what brand of water heater they have, they don't know the answer to that. If you ask them what, what, you know, how they power their water heaters, I bet many don't know the answer to that either. And I have yet to meet anyone, and this is, uh, I get made fun of for this sort of quip, But I have yet to meet anyone who says that they can't wait for the new water heater to come out because they're totally upgrading next year. Like this is not a conversation that people have. (laughs) So I think it really then becomes about the value proposition and the convenience of getting the thing that is being sold to you. So if the result is, hey, here's a machine, it's going to save you more money than the last one you had and I can get it in for you today. And there's, oh, by the way, there's a federal rebate and a tax credit available for you. That's a great conversation to have with a consumer. Well, thank you, Ari, so much for being on the show. There was a lot to cover here. And I think it's really exciting to see this new era for electrification in our homes. 
We'll be back with another News Flash episode next month. Until then, you can catch up on all of our regularly scheduled shows with my co-hosts, Shane Skelton and Brandon Hurlbut. We have a great breakdown of the Inflation Reduction Act and how that bill got passed. Plus, don't miss our Arsenal of Clean Energy podcast series with support from Third Way, where we dive into the combination of energy security demands amid a global energy crisis coupled with our imperative to act on climate and looking at how to keep energy affordable for all consumers here in the U.S. and our allies around the world. It's a great series and you won't want to miss it. Finally, please take a couple of seconds to leave a review for the podcast wherever you're listening. It really helps us grow and improve the show. Thanks again. We'll be back soon. 